So here we are right on schedule. It's Tuesday night. Time for the talk. And this will be my last talk of the month. Uh, Tomorrow will be my last uh, day of interviews with you all. So let me just start by saying what a delightful uh, group of people you've been to practice with and to learn with. So many interesting practice meetings. At least they're interesting to me. (laughs) Your experience, of course, uh, could be stated or unstated, (laughs) verbally or non-verbally afterwards. Uh, But they're always so different, so individual. That was one of the big learnings that I, I had when I first started teaching, is how completely different you are one from another. Even though, of course, we as human beings are similar in so many different ways, but just the particular um, combination of things, the personality, the, the views, the beliefs, the, uh, the emotions, the psychological structure, the way the mind uh, processes information, the dominant senses, the mix of Vedanas, the predominant hindrances, the uh, unique char- characteristics that are wholesome. This is all very interesting always and so particular to you, just the unique you that you are. So since I've kind of carried a theme that's been fairly directly related to practice this whole month. I think I'm going to close out with that theme as well. In the Tibetan tradition, you sometimes have this phrase used of pith teachings. Has anyone heard that? Pith teachings. And they're usually these very short, punchy aphorisms, uh, things like, you know, uh, drive all blame into one or something like that. And then that's supposed to be like something that kind of compresses the whole, the whole bit. If you know these or these series of things, then you kind of have something you can touch back into when you're trying to figure out how to understand things and how to practice with what arises. So the talk I'm going to give tonight isn't exactly pithy in that it's going to be a little bit longer than the recitation of those kinds of short aphorisms, but it is a kind of summary of practice points that seem important to me and I think might be of benefit to you. So a first thing to say about practice is it's really important to understand the context of what goes on in these kinds of retreat environments. So if you're practicing in a a Buddhist setting, a traditional um, kind of setting, and I would say IMS is semi-traditional, it it holds to the foundational teachings, but holds them in a a Western kind of open-ended way. It's important that you understand that the main context 
for the practice here is the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So about every teaching that you'll hear here in one way or another is either an exploration of those, a review of those, an extrapolation of those, an integration of those with other forms of knowledge, but it all in one way or another relates back to the Buddha's understanding of what causes suffering and uh, his diagnosis of how it can be uh, released and his practical method for doing that. So that's what's going on here. And it's important to say that the Dharma is a kind of universal medicine, meaning it helps almost everything. However, intensive practice is really designed to do one thing above all others, which is to liberate the mind from the kind of delusion or misunderstanding or understandings that it has about reality in the interest of ending the follow-on suffering from that misunderstanding or those delusions. So it's really about pointing the mind directly towards wisdom, connecting it directly to reality so that a number of ways that we hold things incorrectly can be seen through and the suffering that comes from that misunderstanding can fall away, can be let go of. Now, that's the main thing that's going on. There are many secondary benefits that can be part of practice as well. And there's tons of research now on the benefits of, of mindfulness in terms of reduction of stress and the bad health effects of unremitting stress, uh, physical and emotional healing. Uh, and there's clearly psychological insight that can arise on retreat. You know, insights about where something came from that arises frequently in practice, some particular pattern of conditioning, or maybe kind of flashes of insight into your relationships with particular people. or But these are something that happens as a byproduct of practice, right? So the, it's like the bonus, the bonus pieces that come as a result of the emergence of clarity and of the mind moving out of its preoccupation with discursive thought. Sometimes new things can just arise and bubble to the surface. So remember what the primary context is and a lot of things will clear up for you. And I mention that because oftentimes people will come on retreat, you know, they'll come with one particular wound, for instance, or one relationship conundrum or one particular thing about themselves that they think they need to work on. And they kind of turn the whole process around to try to directly go at that. Usually not too successfully, right? But 
if the mind can remember the main purpose, there can be substantial unbinding of personal and psychological suffering which arises just in the process of attending to things in a very simple, immediate way as the instructions ask us to. Okay, so that's understanding the context. The second point is understanding the main task. So I'll talk here primarily about insight meditation for Vipassana practice. So the main task is within this framework of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, to develop a close, mindful connection with your mind stream, or you could put it in another way, with uh, experience arising at the six sense doors in real time, and maintain it. That's all. Within the framework of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, develop a close, mindful connection with a rising experience and maintain it. That is all. And by doing this, things do unfold. It's not like you need to make them unfold. Right? Get the little doer in there and, you know, try to make this one happen and this, this one happen and this next thing happen. So this is a way of saying, you know, understanding arises and deepens organically if you keep your seat. Is it that simple? Yeah, kind of. So how to approach this main task of taking and keeping your seat of mindful connectivity with a rising experience. Now, as you may have noticed, you're being asked to do something that's very simple, right? I just said, you know, you don't need to be doing, doing, doing this and doing that and making this happen and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's very simple. You're asking the mind to go into a state of immediacy and and into receptivity, a kind of non-fashioning in a way. So it's really simple, but it's, it's really hard, isn't it? So if you're going to say, well, why is this so hard if it's so simple? It's because in attempting to do this, we co- encounter deeply conditioned and habituated patterns of mind which are at cross-currents to the main task. And we're often very identified with these particular cross-currents and or we're lost in them. So in the process of trying to be simply present, we come face to face with these kinds of patterns. And of course, there are a variety of tools and techniques to work with these things, right? all in the interest of returning to mindfulness or re-establishing mindfulness or strengthening mindfulness. But there, there are difficulties. We usually call them hindrances. So there will be difficulties no matter what, but some of them can be avoided or minimized by remembering certain 
<coughs> principles. So these are trade secrets, but I'm going to tell you them tonight. So things to keep in mind when taking and keeping your seat. Number one, practice only occurs in the present tense. And I know I've said this to a number of you in interviews and maybe more than once. Because <laughs> it's so uh, fundamental. So a memory of the past or a thought or fantasy about the future, these are present tense, present moment arisings, are they not? We don't actually experience the past in the past when we're sitting. We experience the present moment and the arising of memories of the past, say. Can you see that? Okay. It's good to see that because we forget that a lot. The same thing with the future. How we suffer with thoughts of the future. I don't know, maybe your thoughts of the future are more along the pleasant, pleasant end of the spectrum, but... I notice very often it can be a source of great suffering for people. Who was it that said? I think it might have been Mark Twain. He said something about, yeah, I've suffered so much or I've experienced so much difficulty of just from all those things that never happened. <laughs> so if you can recognize that it's all now, 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 now is the only time you need to relate to. Everything that you experience arises in the now. A second point. Experience is always new. It does not repeat itself. So I know I've had that conversation with a number of you too in the course of the month. So it's always presenting itself anew. So if you were experiencing anger yesterday and you're experiencing anger today, these are two different arisings. So they may feel similar, but they're different. So then the question is, can you bring a fresh mind to a new arising? Can you, re can you attend to this as a present experience. And, and this is always worth pointing out too, you actually aren't always angry, or you aren't always sad, and you aren't always distracted, and you aren't always, you know, fill in the blank. And it's important to note, notice that. These are all temporary states. They arise because of particular causes and conditions and then they pass away. So it's sometimes said that all states are self-liberating. It's an interesting way to put it. Self-liberating. Meaning they go on their own. And the suffering ones often go on their own a lot more readily when we don't get all tangled up in a big fight or a big resistance to them. 
Okay, point number three. It's important to have what I call integrity of effort, meaning committed effort. Not half-assed, half-hearted, but committed effort with integrity in it. But do not be insistent upon specific experiences. So you don't know what's going to happen next. You really don't know what's going to happen next. It's a surprise very often. And you may have already noticed that you can be quite surprised on retreat, for instance. You'll have a sitting and it'll come in, you'll come in, you have a sitting, and it'll feel like a certain way for a while, and then it'll turn into something quite different, you know? Maybe it started easy and then it got hard and distracted, or maybe you had the experience of, you know, doing a walking period where your mind was completely uh, spaced out and you couldn't attend to anything at all, you're in thoughts all the time, and then you had another walking period where you were really present and the mind was very spacious and content with the experience as it was being known. But you really don't know what's going to happen next. That was, when I realized that in my practice, it got much, much easier. And I kind of developed what I uh, I called the go-along-with-it mind, you know? Just kind of like go along with what you're actually experiencing. Even when you might have a feeling like, this can't be right. Like, what happened, you know? This shouldn't... Right? I, I gradually learned to see, okay, just go along with it. It's like, okay, it was like this you know, an hour ago, and now it's like this, well, okay, just, okay, that's the way it is. So there's less shadowing or uh, reverberation within the system when things are different, when things change, right? Less clinging to something, uh, whether it's an idea of what should be happening, or, you know, whether it's a memory of how it just was, or whether it's an ideal of what we think would be good to have. Just dropping the insistence on specific experiences. So if you have unseen expectations, they're going to be thwarted and can easily lead to feelings of defeat and frustration, right? So in a certain kind of way, you could say that fixed expectations are a way of stating the boundary of what is acceptable and desirable from your point of view, right? But this really comes from delusion, and it's a a form of suffering, because we can't enforce it. When you start to realize you can't enforce it, this is actually in a backdoor way, pointing to the three characteristics, right? Impermanence of states, the fact that they're unsatisfactory because they're unreliable and impermanent, and a realization that we're actually not in control with what comes next. So a parallel next point is stay with what's actually happening. What's actually happening. That's the field of practice, what's actually happening. So keep it 
simple. What is actually happening right now? So then the work to be present is with what's actually there versus what you want, what you don't want, what you should want, what you should have, what you shouldn't have, what you did have, what you could have, what you must have, you know. Notice the arising of the if-only mind. You know, if only I could, if only it would, if only this would go away, if only I could, you know, replicate this experience, if only it would be quieter. You know, the mind of bargaining. (laughs) It was one of the stages of grief, isn't it? The mind of bargaining. If only, if only. Because it really signals a resistance to what's actually present there. It's kind of like the body-mind system is going, I'm going to get rid of this one. Let me get to, let me get to it. It. The amorphous it. Let me get to it. So parallel to this is the understanding that whatever is arising is not a mistake. So whatever is actually happening in that moment is arising in a lawful way, given the totality of the causes and conditions. There's nothing else that could be happening. Given the totality of the causes and conditions in that present moment, many of those causes and conditions being uh, you know, backloaded by things that have happened in the past, some of them directly related to what's there in the present. But given the totality of those things, what's happening is the only thing that could be happening. So practice with what you've got. Acknowledge it. Open to it. Accept it. And this awakening, this coming to understanding, can happen with pleasant experience, pleasant Vedana, unpleasant Vedana, and more neutral Vedana as well. So whether you're experiencing pleasantness or unpleasantness or something that is neither of those two, all of these are equally valid fields of practice and in and of themselves don't indicate anything at all about whether your practice is good or not. It's really interesting how often in conversation people will say, I'll, I'll say, so how's it going? How's your practice going? And, and people will come up with some version of, oh, good. And then I'll inquire a little further into, you know, what good is. And usually good means pleasant. Right? Or, you know, they'll describe some difficulty, you know, physical discomfort or some, uh, you know, uh, painful emotional state, and they'll describe it as negative. You know, so that tendency to have this uh, um, binary view of things is really deep-rooted, right? If it's unpleasant, it can't be good. If it's pleasant... It's got to be, you know, tracking along in the right direction. Let me try to 
keep it going that way and maybe build upon it and improve upon it. But it's really not like that. One of the most interesting teachings of the Buddha is that he says that following uh, sense pleasure as the uh, a reliable trail to uh, liberation is deluded. He says that's not how you, you tell whether something is onward leading. So it's not that there's anything wrong with pleasant. In fact, it's really important to learn to be able to acknowledge it and connect with it and open with it in the same way that you do everything else. But just because it's not like that doesn't mean there's a problem with your practice or that anything's going wrong. So another point is practice is a journey through a landscape not yet known. So Krishnamurti had this interesting phrase. I think it might have been a book title. He, he said, uh, the truth is a pathless land. So you may have a general idea about where practice goes and how it opens, but you really don't have any idea of how you specifically will experience getting there. So I started the talk at the beginning by talking about how different you all are each from the other. You know, the Buddha talks about how the, the practice or awakening happens in different ways for different people. And he said there's four kind of general categories. And he says they're, they're the people for whom the mind and heart open quickly and it's pleasant. And then there are ones who heart and mind open slowly and it's mostly pleasant. And then there's the ones who open quickly, but it's unpleasant. And then there's the ones who open slowly, but it's unpleasant. And I, I once asked a, a really senior teacher what his experience was in observing people's minds about the distribution <laughs> of people within those four categories. And he said, well, it kind of seems that for most people, it's kind of like the slow and not necessarily pleasant, it seems to be the most frequent thing. <laughs> right? So if that's the card, karma card you've drawn, <laughs> that is not a sign there's anything wrong with you, right? It's just kind of like that's the Vedana you might get a lot of and you know, you might feel a lot of times like you're kind of just trudging along. and So, you really know, have no basis for comparison with others because you, you would never know their experience from the inside. And the totality of the factors for them could be something that's completely different. Now, if you are a person who has the good fortune to have lots and lots of pleasant Vedana in your life, for instance, you might be a person that wouldn't even be drawn to doing Dharma practice. 
because you wouldn't identify for yourself necessarily that there's any problem that you would seek to address through this kind of exploration. The people who tend to gravitate towards Dharma practice very often are people who have experienced a lot of dukkha. You know there's dukkha. When you hear the first noble truth for the first time, you go, oh, thank God somebody finally said it. I don't know about you, but that was like my reaction to it. Oh my God, it's not just my imagination, right? So sometimes the, the very contact that we have with what's unpleasant and what's difficult can be what powers the mind turning in the direction of serious inquiry that has the potential for liberation. So it's important to realize that you can trust direct immediate experience. You can trust the value of grounding the mind there at that simplest, most basic level of perception. That that is really the place of learning. That's the place of truing the whole body-mind system is by establishing and maintaining that line of connectivity to immediate arising experience. And there's something about that when it's done in a sustained kind of way that leads to the dropping away of a lot of confusion, a lot of wrong view, a lot of suffering that comes from wrong view and confusion and uh, clinging, just in this very simple, simple way. So you're not going to think or double think or triple think yourself to success. The practice and uh, cognition, thought, This is part of it. Thought and cognition, things like memory, reflection, all the rest of it, this is part of it. But really, the the ground, the, the real ground of purification seems to be more based on the willingness to connect and trust with what you actually experience at all six of the sense doors instead of trying to get to understanding through the mind door and through a lot of cogitation in that sphere. So I would say abandon all assumptions you might have. The Buddha said, whatever you think it will be, or however you think things will be, it is always other than that. And it's really true, right? So do yourself a big favor, trim down the scale of your endeavor to just knowing what's going on now. And it's the place from which it opens. Now another practice point is, the more the experience is about you, the more difficult practice will be. 
You may have discovered this already. So identification with what is experienced is a really common thing. And till the mind is trained differently, that's all it knows how to do. And it's always suffering if it's unseen. So if your ego is running the practice, it always ends badly. You may have noticed this by now, right? So what's happening is always conditioning and is always conditional. And thus it's really not directly under your control. So this is a basic teaching of not-self. So if you take ownership of it, you take up a position for or against what's happening. And then experience either becomes inflating or threatening. So what better conditions for aversion and craving to arise, also known as dukkha? You see that? It's like, ooh, I can't be, ha- I can't be having that kind of thought. Ooh, what a horrible person to have that kind of thought. Or, oh, my mind is so clear. You know, I've got concentration. You know, I'm probably the best person, you know, in the universe. You know, next to God or something like that, right? Then, of course, conditions change. Of course they do. So if you can see experience like a naturally occurring phenomenon, more like the weather... So it's interesting, it's impactful, you have to pay attention to it. But it's really not personal, right? So can you be a weather watcher? And it really isn't personal. When you start to realize it's really not personal, it gets a lot easier. So, of course, this is more difficult than these simple suggestions may indicate. So, of course, you're going to fall off the horse. Ever hear that uh, image used to describe the process of learning to work with the mind? Learning to ride the wild horse? When I... Hear, hear that expression, I kind of get images of some wild horse out in the middle of a field or maybe it's been captured and it's, it's in a corral now. And you'd like to ride the horse, but the horse ain't having it. Right? You go through a pro- whole process of trying to make friends with the horse and try to understand the horse and have the horse understand you. You know, maybe you just kind of hang out on the perimeter of the corral for a while. You know, maybe you bring a little apple and you kind of toss it in there a little bit and then back away and maybe it comes over and takes it as a chew. Maybe you do this for a while, then maybe it starts to notice when you come and it starts to move towards the corral uh, edge before you toss in the apple. So you wouldn't, for instance, try to just, well, most people wouldn't, 
you know, try to just, you know, vault over the side of the corral and then, you know, throw yourself on the back of the horse without there being a saddle or a bridle or any particular riding ability on your part. Wouldn't end well, right? So this all goes to the point of learning to encourage and coax your mind to be, be willing to be present with and to work with what arises. And there will be periods where the cross currents are so strong and the horse is bucking so much you're going to fall on your butt. Maybe you'll get a kick in the head too if you're having a really bad day. You don't kind of get trampled around a little bit by the wild horse of your own mind. So practically speaking, some of this is unavoidable. Anybody who's ever done this practice has had sittings like this, days like this, sometimes weeks like this, where it's just really hard. But one way to consider it is, you know, if you never fell off the horse, if you were the, if you never fell off the horse, you wouldn't be here, right? You'd just be out riding somewhere. So you're here to learn how to ride, <laughs> ride the horse. That's the point. So let's talk about what the main strategies are when you go through these periods where it's really hard or, or difficult or it feels unrewarding, it feels dry or it's very unpleasant or it feels threatening or it feels disillusioning or it feels fruitless, pointless, depressing, you fill, <laughs> fill in the, the words. So, you know, the first thing when you get dumped is, okay, collect yourself. <laughs> you know, just collect yourself again. Start again, collect yourself. So, restoring mindfulness is always task number one. So, for instance, when you... You come in and talk to the teacher about something that's been going on in your practice that you want advice on. The line of questioning or the line of inquiry very often coming from the teacher will be along the line of trying to figure out whether you have mindfulness in relationship to what you're complaining about. Because you come in, you're kind of complaining on yourselves, you know. <laughs> you're kind of complaining on yourselves and what you're experiencing. I'm da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And you're kind of, very often, kind of like disgusted about, you know, about that. So then, the, like, the first test is to find out if there's mindfulness within that experience for you. And you can kind of tell by how it's described. And then if there isn't mindfulness within what's being described, then the teacher will work with you to try to restore mindfulness in relationship to, to what you're talking about. But first, they'll probably talk with you in a way that helps you restore or remember mindfulness in real time right there in the interview, right? Asking you certain things and, you know, waiting to hear, hear you respond to the particular question that was just asked. 
So when, you know, it's back together in that kind of way, then there can be a conversation about the particular practice points. So restoring mindfulness and balance is always task number one when you've been dumped from the horse. So all of the techniques for working with the hindrances and etc. all are all about the restoration of mindfulness in relationship to experience. So part of the role of the teacher is to figure out, okay, can mindfulness be directly restored here in relationship to this particular thing? Or would it be better to direct mindfulness to some, some other field of practice where mindfulness is more easily established right now? Or to change to another practice or suggest the, uh, another practice be added in a particular kind of way? or to give different practice directions about where to focus the mind or where to turn the mind in the interest of, of strengthening or heightening mindfulness. So the teacher is helping adjust the angle at which you're entering into your practice. So another piece about this when you get dumped off the horse is it's really important to normalize this occurrence so there will be difficult periods do not be deterred if you really read the story of the buddha's own journey to enlightenment it wasn't as if he just sat down and everything popped open he had to go through very, very difficult periods of practice and extensive purification of his heart and mind before he could really see clearly and had to let go of many ideas or hopes that he had about that particular styles of practice or directions of practice but would lead to the outcome he sought only to find out after like years of practice within uh, particular frameworks that it came to something less than what he recognized was the full outcome of liberated mind. So difficulty is intrinsic to this process. Practice entails, as I mentioned earlier, coming into contact with, among other things, our own habituated tendencies. And these run really deep and they can be very subtle and difficult to see and also very painful. For instance, like a conditioned tendency of the mind to get frustrated and to turn anger towards itself when there's a feeling of failure or difficulty. You know, and we're very often identified with with these tendencies as me and mine, which makes it hard to maintain a mindful relationship to them. And, you know, when we get into the evidence-collecting way of practicing, where things that come up we kind of like take as evidence 
that's something significant about ourselves, it can be a really big source of suffering, especially if the mind gets on the, you know, I'm not good enough track, or I can't do this track, or there's something wrong with me track. So there's really a deep testing and developing of the paramis in practice, the wholesome, wholesome qualities of mind, like courage and resolve. And a real purification of motive that's part of this whole process of opening and developing the heart and mind. So like all matches with a worthy opponent, the worthy opponent being the forces of delusion, sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. Right? There are bouts where you may feel like, oh man, this is like, what was I thinking? I should, I should have gone to, you know, the beach or something. <laughs> Here I am doing this. Why? But, you know, all loss in this understanding is temporary because it's impermanent, right? This state, too, the state of frustration and difficulty and despair and depression and, you know, the whole sorry mess, as Thomas Burton called it. This is impermanent too. All losses temporary with persistence and integrity of effort. So, another practice point is when you're out of balance and disconnected with the main task, notice if there's an agenda there. You know, is the mind trying to force something or impose something? Because often there, there is when it's like that. Often there's a failure to recognize something that's a foreground experience that has the nature of a hindrance in it, right? It's like there's been a a coloration arise in the mind of a particular state, usually one of the hindrances. And the practice is being done through that particular lens. But the mind isn't registering that. So the question can be, well, what am I trying to make happen here? And why? There's what's happening, and then there's the what I'm trying to make happen. Those are two different things, right? So the practice question is what's happening? In attending to that, you may see the other, you may see what you're trying to make happen. That's a desire, right? Or that's a thought. Or maybe it's an aspiration but it's important to say. So, another practice piece in establishing balance is to not be totally blown over when you come to the realization that there's crazy corners of your mind. 
you know, once you establish a connection with your mind stream, you may wish that you had not. (laughs) So, you know, you might be kind of shocked by what arises in there, actually, you know. So there's a lot of weird stuff in there. You know, even in the ones of us who might be considered fairly, you know, well-balanced and grounded, there's some pretty weird stuff in there. So, you know, you're not unique in this way. So this is just delusion in the mind stream, and, you know, we're all somewhat nuts. So that's a Dharma term. But we really are. So it's just kind of normal to be kind of nuts. Now, it can be very skillful to notice the, and to know that the war on the ego and the war on the self-sense is actually being conducted by the ego. Now, in certain schools of spiritual training or understanding, there's this idea that somehow you have to get rid of the ego or get rid of the self. You ever hear any some of those ideas, you know? Hmm. Well, it would seem that you actually don't need to get rid of your ego or self-sense. And as you proceed to hold things as a rising and passing away phenomenon, you'll start to realize that they are just an arising phenomenon and they are already empty of self. So there's nothing solid or substantial that you need to get rid of because it doesn't exist like that. So you don't need to suppress the self-sense or the ego or to attack them. These are just thoughts, beliefs, and body sensations that arise when conditions are present and they're not an enemy. You know, sometimes uh, in conversations about the self and the self-sense and the ego and all the rest of it, when somebody comes in and they're distressed or disturbed by some you know, egoic arising, I'll have a conversation with them about, oh, so have you ever noticed how many different versions there are of the self? It's really interesting. You would think if there's like a self, there would be like one version kind of carrying through it all, right? But really, we have all these different versions of self arising, right? For instance, there could be the, you know, the needy, whiny, kind of version that wants, you know, the partner to take care of it and, you know, to not have any needs. (laughs) It's just all about, you know, this infantile need to be fed. Or, you know, you could have the version of self that arises that's the crusader for, you know, human rights and dignities that wields the sword of wisdom and has a lot of courage and 
you know, it was very forthright and direct and where you could have the version of the self that's, you know, uncertain and filled with self-doubt or the version of the self that you know, is very generous and compassionate and, right? All of these different versions coming and going. And what are they? Different thoughts, different emotions, different body sensations arising in the present moment, having their life, having their expression, and then passing away. So why would we think like we need to do something about this? Now this is not to say that, you know, you might not experience certain recurrent psychological patterns that are bound up with deep identification and that can't be met in this kind of way where there's just observation in real time without a lot of resistance or attachment to it. So I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying an idea that you have to get rid of a self-sense. That's probably one of those crazy corners that I talked about earlier. Okay. So this is kind of a follow-on point to that, which is about... what's sometimes referred to as the story. Ever hear that expression, the story? Those of you who've been in psychotherapy or in 12-step programs, you know, sometimes there's opportunity to tell the story, you know, tell your story, or you meet somebody new, you know, you're getting in relationship with them, you know, there comes a point in that process where very often there's an exchange of the story, you know, who, you know, how, what were your parents like? What was your family like? Where'd you grow up? What were, you know, know, right? This is part of connecting, part of communicating. Um, we all develop a particular take on our story. This line of personal narrative, and it's very real to us and very meaningful to us. I suffered this thing, or, you know, my personality is like this because of, or... So, there's often a lot of identification in the story. You know, it goes around and around in its own terms. Sometimes it revises itself. Have you ever had that experience where, for instance, If you had asked me what my story was of my, my family when I was 30, I would probably give you a different version than how I see it and understand it now. So they can revise themselves over time. And it's interesting, the relationship between the story and, and the practice. Because we exist in this multidimensional way, right? We do have a per- personal narrative and a story. The world would seem a little barren in a certain kind of way, or as if some of the colors, perhaps, 
the full palette of colors wasn't there if we didn't have a personal story and a personal narrative. And in Dharma practice, in this kind of meditation practice that we're doing here, the primary way that we're relating to our experience is not through the story. So here, just in the same way that you would notice the arising of, say, the egoic self version and hold it as an experience, you would notice the arising of the story narrative as an experience. So one of the interesting things about working with with the teacher, and I really noticed this when I <laughs> when I f- first started going to retreats and this kind of thing, I went to see um, Stephen Levine and Andrea, his spouse, and they were doing work around death and dying, and this was like a four day retreat. And, you know, a lot of people were there in states of grief or they're in there and had a terminal illness or had lost someone or, right? So it was a lot of heavy emotion, a lot of deep emotion. And it was really interesting how they worked with people because they didn't, discredit or dismiss people's personal narrative, right? But they just didn't focus there, right? So they guided people again and again into present moment experience and what was there for them right now and encouraged them to take the seat, take the seat on the wild horse and to work there. So it had nothing to do with suppression of anything. And in fact, the complete turning of awareness and an opening to what was actually present is the opposite of suppression, right? It's just working in a different way, in a more simple, more basic way with what's immediately present, including the residue of the story without getting tangled up in the narrative of the storyline. And this was a really uh, different thing to see and kind of counterintuitive because, you know, very often in other environments or other places, for instance, there would be a real exploration of the story itself and the storyline. Here, not so much. Here, a more direct turning to immediate experience, what's immediately there. And a pointing out, for instance, uh, to the person practicing, when the mind had become absorbed in the story and the narrative to the point where mindfulness was lost. So this is a really different thing, isn't it? So it's a very interesting thing. It's not that there's no room for it, and it's not that the teachers don't care. It's not a lack of compassion. 
It's just a different way. Can you see that? It's a different way of learning to be present with the deep truths of our life. So that's something we'll have a pop-up quiz about tomorrow morning. We'll have one of some of those bubble exams where you fill in the little bubbles with your pencil. I guess now you would probably just, you know, click them with your stylus or something. So now you know the secrets, right? So you can listen to it again if you forget. (laughs) Probably post it on Dharma Seed. So the most simple of all the instructions, of course, is just stay in the present. Turn to immediate arising experience. Remember you have six sense doors and only one of them involves thought. (laughs) Stay there. (laughs) Stay there. In a certain kind of way, it's like a, a stream that has been undammed. And when it's allowed to run, when the mind stream is allowed to run, uh, it can reestablish purity just through that process of being able to run freely and to take its own course. So, All of this is a lot of learning and a lot of doing to eventually arrive at non-fashioning and non-doing. But with a mind then that understands what's going on and doesn't suffer in discretionary ways that humans often suffer when they don't have understanding, when they haven't seen for themselves the truth of how things are. So that's good for now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.